decided to bring in an all-star from the FEC. And you might be like, well, Chase, what's the FEC? Whether you know it or not, we are actually part of a denomination, and we're going to learn more about that this morning. So let's go ahead and welcome Eric Hall to the stage. Good morning, everyone. Eric, you can come close if you'd like to. I know we're trying to keep You know, I don't feet. know where to sit. I, know, I don't right. know where I to stand. I should have put a monk on the stage. It's okay. Everything's a, kind of a confusion. <laughs> um, everybody, this is Eric Hall. He is the Director of Communications and Church Relationships at wow, FEC. Nice so the first thing I want to ask is this. From your definition, what is the FEC? Yeah, great question. FEC is the denomination that Great Oaks is a part of. Uh, it's a group of, you know, I hate the word denomination, by the way. So often I'll use words like association or movement or group, but it is a denomination. But it's a denomination of about 70, 75 churches around the nation. Um, FEC tends to be a pretty small denomination, so the churches tend to be clustered. Like there's a good cluster, as you might know, around this greater Peoria area. There's a cluster in the Fort Wayne area where I live, cluster over in Ohio and Kansas. There's even a few up in Maine. And we are spreading out more, but yeah, it's a group of about 70 churches uh, around the nation. Denomination is about 150 years old. Way back when, uh, FEC was called the original name. This is a little church history nerd thing okay. here that nobody knows. The original <laughs> name was Egley Amish. And there was a guy named Bishop Egley, Henry Egley, um, that broke away from the Amish because he thought uh, they weren't being evangelistic enough. They weren't reaching out to the lost people. And uh, started this movement that, for what may be obvious reasons, has eventually became known as Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, or FEC. So that's us. So what you're saying is, I expect to see a lot more beards in the audience next <laughs> week. All right. Yeah, um, exactly. So being the Director of Communications and Church Relations, what is like your favorite part of what you do for the FEC? This, yeah. I mean, I get to do this communication side of stuff, which is sending out emails, keeping websites up to date, worrying about things like an annual conference that we'll do. Um, hopefully this summer, things like that. So I get to do some of those kind of things. Um, but the, the best thing I get to do is um, spend time at churches and spend times with pastors and church leaders. So I'm here Sunday morning. We're going to do some teaching. We're going to talk. Um, but I'm not going home, um, thankfully, till Monday late afternoon because I'll visit a couple other churches, spend some time with some pastors. So it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement, but I get to hang out and kind of pastor pastors in some ways. And sometimes that's, there's crisis, we get to step in and help, and other times it's just having coffee and talking and praying with guys. And I, I, I love what I get to do. It's a great job. Nice. Um, last year was a unique year for the church yeah. um, because of COVID-19. How have you seen COVID-19 affect the churches yeah. overall in the FEC? I mean, there's, there's two things that we see that are just really amazing. I talk to churches, and we've talked about this. I ask churches, where are you at on numbers, um, healthy numbers, just because I get the chance to interact with you know, 70 or so churches in different areas, healthy numbers seem to be like 60% of what churches were before that, but the average is probably closer to 40%. So wherever 100 people that were attending church, I'm seeing about 40 people um, of those that are back in in-person gatherings. So there's, we're still seeing, you know, churches that were running 800 are now running about 400. Churches that were running 400 are running about 200. Uh, there's a church in Fort Wayne that was talking about doing a uh, uh, going to a third service because they were full, and now they have lots of room. So we see that. But the other thing we've seen is God be really faithful. I think um, Great Oaks has experienced this too. God be really faithful in providing finances and just developing new forms of ministry. And so people saying, hey, we might not be able to gather as hundreds upon hundreds together, but we can still gather together and 
talk to our neighbors and love the people around us? And what does that look like? And so I've seen that as a really healthy thing because it's encouraged churches to figure out how do we love people and care for people even if I can't meet in hundreds upon hundreds of people? And um, that's, a, that's a great question. I love that. Uh, switching gears, um, I know something that's at the heart of FEC is church planning. Yeah. Um, so express to me, like, during COVID, how has that heart still come shine through? Yeah, well, it's been, it's been difficult. So right now, at any given time, um, FEC, I think I counted last night, has seven active church plants um, going on around the United States. Um, up in Quad Cities, there's one kind of in Manunk, which may be about an hour from here. Maybe Mononc, Illinois, is middle of, middle of nowhere. Um, I mean, it's a tiny little town. Um, Eric Johnson's planting over there. Quad Cities area is getting started up. There's one down in Kansas, another one on the south side of Fort Wayne, and uh, down in Indy and stuff. So there's about seven of them going on. We've seen that they've struggled to um, ramp up some of them online gatherings. And so they've, some of them, for the first time, have gone on, excuse me, in-person gatherings. So they've gone online first. So the church that's meeting with uh, Tanner Smith is their planter up in the Quad Cities, Iowa area. Um, they've been meeting online for like eight weeks before they ever had their first in-person service. Oh. So that's really unique. But then different state, different thing. The church in uh, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I live on the south side, meeting, has been meeting in a YMCA and is having 200 people come. So um, it's just different. But yeah, that, that whole planting thing is really at the heart of what FEC is about is helping churches uh, continue to do that in a healthy way. Uh, one thing we like to do is celebrate wins. I mean, we talk about that with yeah. you know, baptisms, just people accepting Christ, or just programs that are exceedingly doing well. Yeah. What are some wins that you think the FEC had this last year, even though in the midst of COVID? Yeah, those are great. Um, I mean, one of the ones internationally, if you haven't caught, one of the new international movements that we're partnering with is, is the Southern Africa so it's SACPI, Southern Africa Church Planning Initiative. And um, it started out with just one church making a connection, and then it's kind of grown to about five and ten. And when that happens, we at the FEC office usually come in and help take it over because it's gotten too big for one church to manage. Um, and so we've seen about five different churches. They even changed the name. It used to be the South Africa, but now they're being careful to call it the Southern Africa because they're up in Mozambique and different areas around there. And so there was a church that they planted. First service was in August of last year, and they had about 100 people come in this, you know, what you would stereotype um, Africa to look like, this desert-like area out in the middle of the sun and desert. And they had about 100 people. Of those 100, they had about 70 people make professions for Christ, their first-time decisions. Oh, that's awesome. So we that's see sick. some of that kind of stuff happening. That's it's awesome. really cool. Yeah. Um, the fact that we can do it, you know, that we see churches starting to ramp up even in the midst of COVID is um, a God thing. And then the third thing, of course, is that churches are surviving financially. I don't know, you know, attendance is half of what it used to be, generally speaking, and yet giving is healthy in a lot of places. I mean, that's just, that doesn't make any human sense. Mm -hmm. So um, so one question that everybody always asks when they talk about being part of the denomination is, and I know you hate that word, mm -hmm. being part of the FCC. Um, what is it that the FEC, when you're at the office, and you know what, here's how we are going to help our churches. Yeah. What does that primary goal look like for the office? Yeah, so um, my boss, Rocky, the president of FEC, um, I don't know if he coined this term or, or what, but he calls it the undenomination or how we flip the script. So he really wants um, people to view FEC as coming underneath and supporting churches. So we um, are cautious about starting too many things versus responding when we see two or three churches start to gather and do something together. Then we say, 
hey, how can we help? Where can we resource that? How can we come in? And so, yeah, so some of the, those are the kind of things that we're able to bring in. And so um, really all of our communication, all of our resourcing is centered around um, trying to uh, resource, equip, pray for, and strengthen the church leaders. And so we do that with credentialing, with online classes. Um, we have some partnerships with seminaries. So we get some pastors that are called up to lead churches, especially in rural areas like Manunk, apparently. Um, so they're leading churches in these areas, but they, they maybe don't really have some of the academic stuff. They just felt called, and they're leading. And so we're saying, hey, we can help. And so we've created some partnerships with some seminaries in the area where they can get some, some academic training while actually still doing it. And, and it's really cool. <clears throat> so some of those kind of things. Um, so last question. Yep. What excites you or has excited you the most that you've seen from the churches in the FEC this last mm -hmm. year or coming up? Yeah, well, what excites me is what COVID has done, um, really. Um, I think COVID has forced the church to start to think differently. Like, I love being in a gathering like this. We're going to teach in just a little bit. Um, but I love being in small groups. I love sharing my life with a small group of people. And I think COVID has forced the church to realize, um, yeah, 400 is great, 600 is great, 800 is great, 6,000 is great. But, man, in some ways, circles are better than rows. And we can do some things when it's 10 of us together. And it's forced this church to think about that. It's forced the church to say, when Jesus called me to love my neighbor, I mean, that means a lot, but it definitely means my neighbor and getting out of my circle and loving. So COVID has focused us on some of those kind of things, and I found that um, incredibly encouraging. Awesome. Uh, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm yeah. going to pray, and then um, we're going to play an awesome video. That You know what? Let me let Eric talk about the video we're going to yeah. play here in a second first before I pray. Go ahead. So we put this video together. We had conference once a year. Last year we went online only, obviously, for COVID. We had three, 400 um, church leaders join us virtually. So we put together a video to just say this is what FEC is but rather than run numbers and boring stuff, we just ask every worship leader um, in FEC to turn in the song, this same song. And I'm sure you've seen other YouTube versions of it. This is our FEC version. So there's a couple from Great Oaks that are in it. And it's just us. We opened it with this worship song. So it's a worship song, but it'll cut to all different worship uh, pastors and say, this is what FEC is. These are FEC. So. Right. Well, let's pray, church, and we'll get into that video. Heavenly Father, God, we are just so glad we can gather here this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for Eric and his heart um, for the mission and for ministry. Uh, God, we thank you for the FEC um, and all they provide to us and um, the partnership that they come alongside with Great Oaks. God, we ask this morning as um, we dive into the word with Eric that we just open our minds and hearts to what you have to speak through him to us. God, we just thank you for all that you do. Praise all in your son's name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. So that's what it means to be part of FEC. I watched that video and uh, uh, almost all of those guys have become, and uh, women have become friends and the people I get to know. And the track itself was recorded by another church. So uh, it's good to be with you. Um, I'm supposed to give a shout out to my wife. She's watching online. So my wife, Becky, I'm really here. Um, I'm really doing something this morning. So uh, all the churches in Fort Wayne, Northeast Indiana, where I'm at, are canceled this morning. Um, what became rain as I drove here late last night, uh, or this area late last night, uh, was snow. So they picked up four or five, maybe six inches in the Fort Wayne area. So nobody's going anywhere. So my wife apparently is tuning in. So that's a little shout out to her. If you look Minor things about me, I'm married. My wife, Becky, I told you that I have three kids. Uh, two of them are married. My daughter is my oldest. She's married, lives in the Fort Wayne area. She's expecting our first grandchild in April, so we're pretty excited about that. We're hoping we get to go to the hospital. We'll see what COVID looks like then. Uh, my middle child, Rick, is uh, married and lives in Fort Wayne as well. And then my youngest is a junior in college, and he goes to a college up in Michigan. I think kind of up towards... University of Michigan way in a little town called Spring Arbor near Jackson, Michigan. So that's, that's, that's me. This is what I get to do. I get to travel. I was in a church in Angola a week ago, so now I'm up here um, and grateful for the weather. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to go to three different passages. If the whole Bible thing's a little bit newer to you, it's okay. I'm going to tell you, use the table of contents. Don't be afraid. It's no big deal. Um, but we're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 first. Then we're going to go to Revelation. Then we're going to come back to Daniel. So three passages that we're going to kind of run through. Um, but if you want to open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, that's where um, we're going to start. So I know that this is going to date me a little bit. But I remember Saturday mornings as the time that you would get up and watch cartoons. How many of you are with you guys? Okay, yeah, you guys get this. So you would get up Saturday morning, run downstairs, and for hours on end, we would watch cartoons. Because that was the only time the cartoons were on. Now, it's all news, paid programming, and talk. I checked. That's what Saturday morning. But when I was growing up, and don't we all hate any sentence that starts like that? When I was growing up, it was all about cartoons. Some of the cartoons were like Scooby-Doo which, by the way, premiered in 1969, I looked it up. Scooby-Doo was always a big deal when Batman joined them or when the Harlem Globetrotters joined in. It was like a joint thing. Wile E. Coyote, Roadrunner, Bugs Bunny, and Tweety, the Smurfs, unfortunately, premiered in 1981. In case you're wanting Superman in the Justice League, I think it was my personal favorite. Was, that was the early, or Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Some of you are singing the song right now. My wife made me promise not to sing any songs. Fat Albert came out in 1972, by the way. That was what Saturday morning was all about. Some of the TV shows were just horrible. But that's what we did on Saturday morning. We watched cartoons and ate Pop-Tarts. We thought it was great. But maybe the quintessential Saturday morning experience, when I think about it for me, was Schoolhouse Rocks. You guys remember Schoolhouse Rocks? These little, in case you don't know, Schoolhouse Rocks were these little three-minute shorts that would come on, and they were trying to teach us something, right? Some of you can sing the songs. Again, this is why my wife made me promise, do not sing the songs. Let me tell you some. See if you get these. Some of them are obscure, but maybe, these are the ones that came to mind. If you could skate, it would be great if you could skate. A figure eight, the little girl kind of out by herself skating a figure eight. It was all about math. All the original Schoolhouse Rocks were all math, by the way. 
then they grew into other areas. My hero, Zero, such a lovely little hero. Before you came along, we counted on our fingers and toes. How about this one? Lolly, 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 get your adverbs here. Yeah, everybody knows that one. This was another one. Do you remember Rufus Xavier Sarsaparilla brought the kangaroo home and now he is his? It was all about pronouns. Because Rufus Xavier Sarsaparilla was way too much to say, so he said he. No, not technically schoolhouse rocks, um, but maybe one of the key was this horrible animation of this western guy in a big hat that hankered for a hunk of cheese. Does anybody remember? I, when my get up and go has got up and went, I hanker for a hunk. Or I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I mean, I can hear the song. But maybe the ultimate schoolhouse rocks was a little director holding a light called conjunction, junction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. Conjunction, junction, how's that function? He would say, I got three favorite cars that get most of my job done. Conjunction, junction, what's their function? I got and, but, and, or, they'll get you pretty far. Now, don't ask me why, but believe it or not, I've been thinking about conjunctions in the Bible. I started taking some notes, and this little message kind of came out of this. In particular, the simple word, but. But. According to conjunction, junction, but is an opposite. Not this, but that. So what I want to do this morning, real brief, is look at three but statements in the Bible. Three times that this word shows up and makes all the difference, plus it gives me an excuse to say the word but a lot. And what's not to like about that? So you with me? Three times the word but showed up in the Bible and made all the difference. Three times. So the first one is 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you have your Bible, you want to turn in there. It's, you know, kind of in the first third of the Old Testament. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents. Look at me. I have to turn. So I'm going to read a few verses. I'm reading out of the NIV because it's what I have. And um, you can kind of follow along. I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3, starting in chapter 26. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Eloth and restored it to Judah after Amaziah wrestled with his father. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. If you don't know how to say a name and you're doing something, just make it up. Say it really confident. Jechaliah, she was from Jerusalem. So I'm going to stop there. Just a couple things to note. Uzziah became king at age 16 and reigned 52 years. Imagine with me becoming the king of a country at 16 years old. Just to put that into perspective, the youngest American president ever was Theodore Roosevelt, technically, who became president at age 42. He was almost 43. John F. Kennedy's a close second. The top 10 youngest, top 10 youngest presidents ever in America include somebody who was 50. I'm 52. If I would become president, God forbid, I would be in the top 10 youngest ever. And here's Uzziah becoming king at age 16. And not just that, he reigned for 52 years until 52 years. Of the 20 kings who ruled in Judah, only one, only one ruled longer than him. 
That's Hezekiah because he prayed for some years to be added to his life. Uzziah took over at 16 and was one of the longest reigning kings ever. So that's Uzziah. Let's pick it up back now in verse 4 and 5. Okay? He, Uzziah, verse 4, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this may seem like a simple statement, especially in the Bible. Like, well, duh, I mean, isn't the Bible writing about people like this? But again, of the 20 kings of Judah, only five get this designation. And Uzziah is one of the five. Fifteen of them didn't do anything good. They were awful. They didn't even try to follow God. Only five of the 20, one out of four, get this simple little designation that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. God blessed him. He prospered, and as a result, the nation under him prospered. Verse 16 through 15, we're not going to read through all these, but verses 16 through 15 start to chronicle how he prospered. Here's all the things he did. These nine verses list out the ways God blessed him. Verse 6 says he went to war and won. Verse 8, his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful. Verse 15 says his fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. The message translation by Eugene Peterson picks up verse 15 and says everything seemed to go his way. If it was written today, they'd say life is good. Life is good for him. Things are going well. So before I go on, let me just ask you here, you watching, how many of you would say this way about you right now? You would say, if you had to be a little honest, maybe life's good right now. I mean, I know we got masks and COVID, but you would say, I have a good job, decent money, I have a nice house, I have a good marriage, I have a healthy family, whatever. If you were to evaluate your life, you would say, yeah, life is, life's pretty good right now. Some of us would. I'd probably have to fall into that camp. Things are, things are good. My family's healthy. I have a job. I have a house. I ask because in verse 15, we read what may be one of the saddest, excuse me, verse 16, what may be one of the saddest statements in the Bible, and it begins with the word, but. Look with me at verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other, 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. That's tough stuff to say to the king, who could kill you, by the way. Verse 19, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. He was ticked off. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Verse 20, when Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw he had leprosy. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because 
the Lord had afflicted him. Verse 21, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous and excluded from the temple of the Lord. Verse 16, after he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Uzziah thought he knew better. He thought the rules don't apply to him. He was above it. What's ironic about this is his success, the very blessings of God, were the things that led to his downfall. His success led to his downfall. ESV translates it, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Our but statement that I wrote out was not humility, but pride. That's Uzziah's problem. Now what I like to do, we have three but statements when I make a message, is to spend a little time on the first point and then apply it before we move on to number two. So kind of by way of application here, before we move on to the second but statement, let me just ask you, what is your but statement? What's the area of your life that could lead to your downfall? Maybe, just maybe some of you are dangerously close to it right now. I mean, you've been standing on the edge of your butt statement. And maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's something else. I mean, I assume none of us are tempted to walk into the temple and burn incense. First of all, we couldn't do it. We'd have to go to Israel and then, yeah, all that stuff. But where is your pride leading to your downfall? What's your butt statement? At work? In a relationship? In your thought life, where? If this is you, and really to some degree it's all of us, let me just challenge you with one simple application. This is the write down thing to do. Tell someone. Find a trusted friend, a small group, a pastor, somebody, and tell them. Tell them, this is my butt statement. This is how I'm going to get taken out if left unchecked, and I need your help. Tell somebody. Quit pretending that everything's fine and I've got it all under control. I don't. I'm tired of hanging out with couples and people who don't. Just tell someone. Tell somebody and ask them to hold you accountable. Tell them you need your help. But statement number one was... Not humility, uh, but pride. Excuse me, not pride, but humility. But statement number two we're going to go through is not reputation, but reality. If you have a Bible, you can flip all the way to the back to Revelation chapter 3. Second time I see the word but coming up in the Bible is Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are these sets of letters to the churches. There's seven of them. Just letters to different churches that kind of got written out. In chapter 3, we pick up the letter to the church in Sardis. Just think Turkey, if you know where Turkey is, kind of the connection between Europe and Eastern area. Sardis is a town, and this letter got written to him. So here it is. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds, 
for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. The church in Sardis suffers from what I call the Facebook problem. Facebook or Instagram or whatever you want to put in there. See, on Facebook, we only post things that make us look good, right? I mean, the pictures are carefully cropped, edited, retouched, taken care of to make us look good, staged and tweaked to project the right image. Just Google the words Facebook envy and look at the thousands of answers you get. Everyone looks good and happy on Instagram, don't they? Everybody. Everybody's having more fun than me on Facebook. Every relationship seems to be better than mine on Facebook. Everybody's got better kids than mine on Facebook. I mean, I just see, I mean, I, I look at my life and then I go on Facebook and I'm like, oh my gosh. Apparently my vacations aren't nearly as exciting as all of yours. Apparently my life is a lot more boring than everybody else's because it all looks good on Facebook. That's the problem that Church of Sardis was suffering from. If Facebook or Instagram was around during the early church years, this would be exactly the problem the church in Sardis had. Reputation over reality. They looked good, but they weren't really good. Apparently this church, the people attending this church, had a reputation for being alive, for being mature, Christ-following Christians, but were told that it was just a reputation. It wasn't reality. It was a carefully curated, edited, staged, posed reputation, not reality. So I just wonder, not knowing any of you, I can always ask these questions. Does this apply to any of us right now? I know it's a temptation of mine. I mean, I work for a denomination. I preach in front of churches. I meet with pastors, for goodness sakes. It's easy to project an image that I've got it all together. It's really easy to create a reputation, to maintain this Facebook-like image that everything's okay. That I never doubt, that I never struggle, that I never have problems, that I have nothing but blessings. Like I said, I'm a preacher, for goodness sakes. Of course that's true. It's easy to focus on reputation over reality, isn't it? So my question for the second but statement, does this describe any of you this morning? Have any of us missed the mark? And focused on reputation, not reality. I think all of us struggle. So let me just give you a couple quick suggestions before we move on to the third and final point. Three things we can do. And these will sound eerily familiar. Verse 3 says, repent. Stop it. Stop telling everybody you're fine. Repent. Repent is like a military term. I'm walking this way to turn around and walk the other way. That's what repent means, to change your mind. Stop telling everybody you're okay. I'm not. And if you really got lots of time and you want to get into my life, we can do it. I got lots of problems. I struggle sometimes. I make bad decisions sometimes. My relationships aren't always perfect. And neither are any of yours. Let's just stop and repent. Let's stop trying to project this reputation. Number two, let's remember. Revelation 3 calls us to remember some things. Remember the things you used to do. Remember how you were when you first got saved, the excitement. 
And then number three, tell someone. Go tell people. Tell people the reality of your life. Find a group, find a friend, find somebody you can be honest with and tell them, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what my marriage is really like. Here's what my relationships are really like. Here's what I really think about. The good, the bad, and the ugly. For me, it's a group of men downtown Fort Wayne every Monday morning at 6 a.m. It's a group of about 10 or 15 of us. Cover the gambit from guys living in the homeless shelter to doctors making a really nice income. And we're just honest. I mean, it's honest there. Because I need a place where I can focus on reality, not reputation. Tell someone. So but statement number one. Not pride, but humility. But statement number two, not reputation, but reality. And finally, but statement number three is what I call not demanding, but trust. And we see this played out in Daniel chapter three. It's a story if you've attended church for any time, you're going to be familiar with it. It's one of those, it's one of those, uh, Sunday school flannel graph kind of stories. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before I read, quick backstory: nation of Israel was destroyed, taken over. The Babylonians came in and took people. In particular, they took the powerful and the young and pulled them out of their country and took the young to Babylon and put them in there. Their goal was to make them into Babylonians. So they pulled them out. That's the whole story of Daniel. Daniel was one of those guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three others. They were pulled out of their area, taken as prisoners, and deported to live in Babylon. Teenagers living in a strange land with strange customs, a different culture, a foreign language, and, of course, a different religion full of idol worship. Look at the opening verses of Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So they all came to the dedication, and they stood before it. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O people, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, of course, this presented a problem for our three teens. Again, teenagers. They worshiped the one true God. They couldn't fall down and worship this idol. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers, I like to call them what they are, tattletales, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn should fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down will be thrown into the blazing fire. But there were some Jews you have set over their affairs, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them, and they were brought before the king. These three teenage boys were brought before the king. Skipping down to verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar says, what's going on, guys? 
furious with rage. Fiery furnace right here. What's going on? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Now, I stop right there because a lot of times then we jump to verse 19 because God did save them, right? And if you know the story, there's three people in there. There's somebody else that looks like a person, and they all get saved, and they live happily ever after. That is the truth. That is how it happens. But look at verse 18. Again, it starts with this word, not this, but that. But even if he does not, we want you to know, King, that we will not serve your gods. Even if God doesn't. They moved away from demanding to trust. They didn't demand that God answer them. In fact, they never would have said verse 18 unless they weren't sure. And these three teenagers were not sure how this thing was going to work out. They go, our God can save us, but we don't know if he will. That's what they're saying. We might get thrown into the fiery furnace and die. Period, end of story, whole different Sunday school story there. They just weren't sure. But even if he didn't, in the midst of this uncertainty, they didn't demand an answer from God like some tantrum-throwing two-year-old. Instead, they trusted that no matter the outcome, they hoped for a miracle, but they didn't demand one. They left everything in the hands of God. Consider with me the little phrase, but even if he doesn't. We want our prayers answered, but even if he doesn't. We want long life and good health, but even if we don't. We want our children to have faith and to prosper, but even if he doesn't. We want to see miracles happen, but even if we don't. If God says no to your cherished dreams and your fondest hopes, will you say still trust him? If God says no to your plans for the future, will you still serve him? If God says no when through tears you pray for those you love, will you still follow him? This brings me face to face with the doctrine I kind of made it up, but I don't like it. It's called the unpredictability of God. It means that God does what he wants to do, not always or even often what I expect him to do. I mean, have you experienced this? God does what he wants to, and often that's not what I expect. These three young men had a big God, and they knew that their personal deliverance might not be the most important thing to God right now. That's tough. It's tough for me let alone some teenagers. That's a key insight. Because most of us, when we get into a tight place, the only thing we can think about is making sure we get out okay. Make the pain go away. Make it stop, God. Fix the problem. We pray, oh, Lord, get me out of this jam. Make the pain go away. And sometimes we say, if it be your will, but let's be honest, we don't really mean it. We hope God's will is the same as ours, but often it isn't. It's like we see through a glass darkly, looking through a pinhole or a keyhole. We only see this much, but God sees the whole panorama of history stretched out. In Acts chapter 12, we don't need to turn there, but the apostle James is killed with a sword in the opening chapter of Acts chapter 12, and then Peter is miraculously delivered out of prison. 
Why? Hezekiah, the other king who ruled a long time, asked for and is given 15 more years to his life. While Rachel, in the book of Genesis, dies in childbirth on her way back home, Bethlehem. Why? One man gets cancer and dies at 42. Another man lives to be 85. Why? One child does well, another struggles all his life. Why? One family knows prosperity and seems to have it made, while another struggles to barely make ends meet. Why? A friend is promoted and you are passed over. Why? Two soldiers go off to war, only one comes home. Why? One child is born healthy and another isn't. Why? Some prayers are answered and others apparently never answered. Why? This is the but statement of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Believing that God can save them, but even if he doesn't. Not demanding, but trusting. And I say this because some of you, crowd this big or watching, some of you are right in the middle of this. Struggling with demanding. Because your prayers aren't getting answered. Health isn't coming back. The job isn't getting there. The disease isn't going away. The marriage isn't getting better. And you need to be reminded about three teenagers standing before a really hot furnace who just said, we know God can do this, but even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, not like some tantrum-throwing two-year-old. That's hard. That's really hard to do. Not demanding, but trusting. When life doesn't go my way, it's hard. And then I'm ashamed that I'm outfaithed by three teenagers. Are you kidding me? I've been at this thing for like 30 years now. I should be further along. Before I wrap up, before the team comes back out, let me ask you if this describes you. Maybe this morning you've been edging into, slowly walking into this attitude of demanding or maybe even thinking about giving up trust. Like you've been fighting this disease, the child to return to faith, the job to come back, and you need to be reminded of three teenage boys standing before a hot furnace saying, but even if he doesn't. So, but statement number one, not pride, but humility. What's your but statement going to be? But statement number two, not reputation, but reality. And finally, but statement number three, not demanding, but trust. Let me close in prayer and the worship team will lead us out. God, I am... uh, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the legacy of faithfulness and love for you this church has that I get to just be here and worship and spend time and make friends. And God, I pray that you would challenge us today. Challenge us to walk to a deeper sense of trust even when we don't get our ways. Challenge us to remember three teenagers standing before a hot, fiery furnace saying, even if it doesn't. Challenge us to remember one of the most powerful kings of all time. It says, but after his became successful, his pride led to his downfall. May that not be true of us. 
And God, may you challenge us to be people who are real and not reputation. God, thank you that you love us more than we can ever understand, that you are in the business of bringing life to the dead spots in our hearts. Thank you again for your son and for the life you're working in all of us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.